Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Just before the November election, an error was spotted in Spanish language instructions for Hartford's ballot. To make sure this was corrected before November 7th, election officials included an additional piece of paper with the ballot that had the correct instructions in Spanish. Advocates have said the error underscores the language access issues many Connecticut residents face and the different kinds of Spanish language mis- and disinformation there are to tackle. Coming up, we'll hear about how one news outlet enlisted more than 100 Latino immigrants in disinformation defense and what they learned about how disinformation operates. But first, here to discuss the important role state and local governments play, particularly as the 2024 election approaches, is Dr. Charles Venator. He's the faculty director for UConn's Puerto Rican Studies Initiative and director of El Instituto, the Institute of Latino, Caribbean, and Latin American Studies. Welcome back to Where We Live, Charles. Thank you. Good morning. And with us also is Nellie Gorbea. She's a visiting senior fellow on cybersecurity at the Pell Center and the former Secretary of State of Rhode Island. Thank you so much, Nellie, for being with us today. Good morning. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Nelly, we'd love to start with you if you can help us begin with defining some terms for us. You know, how would you distinguish the differences between mis, dis, and even malinformation? Yes, uh, thanks. Uh, and I think this is really important because there's different ways in which false information is, is, is being promoted and, and distributed. So misinformation is information that's false, but it's not created to cause harm. So, you know, there was a post that was sent out with, you know, polling locations, but there was a typo in it and there was a mistake because it happened to be a special election and they've changed polling locations. There was no intent to do harm. That's misinformation because it's misin- misinformed. Disinformation is false information that was deliberately created to cause harm. So, and and this doesn't this predates the um, you know the the era of social media and the internet. I mean, back in the old days, it was flyers put into neighborhoods, you know, with you know purposely containing you know wrong information or or allegations that were you know invented and things like that. You know, more recently, you, it could be like, you know, purposely sending out the wrong date for when an election is being held. Right. So that's disinformation because there's actually an intent to cause harm. And then malinformation is the information that's based on reality, but it's been distorted and altered to cause harm. So social media posts with, you know, fake uh, videos or incorrectly claiming that Election Day has technical difficulties. Uh, at the polls, and, and, and it's done on purpose, it's created on purpose, altering actual reality 
to to make it so that you suppress the vote. Um, so this myth, this and malinformation. And uh, whenever I, I run into a, a problem remembering what each of them are, <laughs> I, I recommend people go to uh, the National Association of Latino Elected Officials. Naleo's Educational Fund has a great program called Defiende la Verdad, uh, Defend the Truth, and, and they actually break it down for you. Well, that's excellent advice. Thank you so much for for adding that to our arsenal of information. And and Charles, I want to ask, so it sounds like this ballot typo in Hartford could be qualified as misinformation. You know, what was your reaction to that incident? You know, what was going through your mind when you first heard about it? Well, thank you. And this is really helpful, by the way, this uh, list of uh, terms. Uh, Two things were going on. One is that it's 2023. We've had uh, several Puerto Rican mayors. We have a president of the city council is Puerto Rican, uh, Mali Rosado. Uh, so you have a, a large population of Puerto Ricans, and it doesn't make any sense that at this stage, uh, this ballot error should have taken or should have happened. Uh, and it does. It, it took a while. It took public sort of denunciation to correct at least that part of the ballot issue. My concern is, and I think this, I agree. This is a form of misinformation is that Puerto Rican voters and Latino voters in general mm-hmm. um, may be discouraged from participating when they see these types of typos. And it, it sort of sends a message that the city government doesn't care that much for voters. Uh, and yeah. when we have low voter turnout, uh, this can contribute to discouraging higher participation. And Nelly, sort of as a follow-up, I would, yeah, I would actually like to ask for your reactions about this typo as well, you know, using it as a kind of example of the issue that we're talking about, and also if you can talk about the important role of government here, actually. Yeah, well, you know, as a, as a Latina elected official, um, and I was actually the first Latina elected at statewide office in, in New England, um, you know, what I would always convey to people is, would that mistake have happened in Spanish? I mean, sorry, in English. Would that mistake have happened in English? If somebody preparing the ballots had seen that kind of gobbledygook on ballot instructions, would it have gone through all that? It might have. But, but the fact is, is that elections require an incredible amount of attention to detail because you're talking about people's voting rights. And so anything that's less than perfect, and this is one of the big hurdles and challenges of running elections is there is no fail. Like there is no time to fail. There is no mistake that's allowed within an election. And so it has the highest level of scrutiny and accountability. Uh, and I agree, you know, with Charles that this is probably misinformation. It was not created to cause harm, but the lack of attention to detail in another language, which happens to be Spanish, which happens to be a huge language in the Hartford area, is of concern because it speaks to the institutions, the offices, lack of attention to detail to that community, to, 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 to basically upholding the rights that that community has to receive correct information. And so I want to ask you both this question, especially with this example happening so recently, you know, but Charles, but what are some of the solutions you would propose, especially around translation services for state agencies? Well, well, let me just say, when you look at the individual ballots, and, and here in Connecticut, every town clerk is sort of res- or city clerk is responsible for this uh, ballot, uh, the rest of Connecticut didn't have a problem. This is a problem in Hartford, which has the largest concentration of Puerto Ricans and Latinos in the state. 
no, I, I mean, I think there has to be some sort of check and balance for town clerks uh, and the Secretary of State are double check. <laughs> it's that simple with uh, clear translators. However, let me just say one of the big complaints that we're hearing, we're conducting a lot of focus groups and listening sessions throughout the state, is there's a lack of competent available translators and interpreters in the state. Uh, this is a, a general complaint throughout the state that we're listening. So I wonder whether the state is investing enough resources in having competent uh, translators and interpreters available for these kinds of sort of ballot initiatives. And on what you just said, Charles, you know, are there other states we can look to to have that has offered provisional licenses for translators? Uh, so, I, so I haven't studied that carefully, but I know Nebraska had an initiative several years ago to start opening uh, uh, licenses across the board for uh, immigrants and undocumented immigrants so they can participate in the economy. But I haven't looked at that question carefully. Um, Nelly, I want to follow up with you on this, too. You know, what are your thoughts about this in terms of other solutions that you'd propose? No, well, so in Rhode Island, um, in my office, and, I, and unlike Connecticut, my office, right, when I was Secretary of State, is actually responsible for preparing all ballots in the state. And there are like over 400 different ballot styles by the time you get to a, a full-blown presidential election cycle. Um, so, so we... This is where I tell people, you know, diversity is good. So we have personnel at the Department of State who are fully bilingual. And by that, I don't mean just verbally bilingual, because for something like a ballot accuracy, you need to have somebody who is fully bilingual in Spanish and English. We are fortunate in Rhode Island that the only other language really that passes the voting rights threshold is Spanish. There are jurisdictions where, you know, it's a dozen different languages. I mean, the city of New York is, you know, or, or somewhere like LA has a much higher burden to deal with. But Connecticut and, and, and Rhode Island have a fairly low burden to deal with. And a wealth of population that can absolutely be recruited into these jobs. And, and I'm not saying just hire somebody to be the interpreter. No, that when you open up positions, whether it be your deputy secretary of state, whether it's your, um, you know, uh, assistant, deputy assistant in the elections office, that some real serious recruitment happens in communities that can help fill those gaps. In this case, the Latino, you know, Spanish speaking community, those people are out there. They can be found, but you have to go beyond the, the usual networks that you've been posted jobs in to get those, those people recruited and into the pipeline and then evaluated uh, so that you hire the right person. So, I mean, none of this is rocket science, to be honest. Right. And and Charles, we know you're working on an oral history project around Puerto Rican Day parades here in Connecticut. And, and through that, you actually discovered some pretty surprising evidence of translation services that may have previously been in place. You know, can you talk about that? So, yes. So we're doing an archive, uh, newspaper archive and oral history archives of all the Puerto Rican Day parades in the state of Connecticut since the 1950s although they started in the 1960s. And what we found early on is for, particularly for sponsored migration, mostly from Puerto Rico, that city government and state government were working with companies to provide interpreters and translators. And they were partially funding uh, translators and interpreters all around, all across the board. Uh, so there was a more active involvement by the state government and city government to help with translation services. And that sort of faded away over the past a couple decades. 
Uh, so now it's a sort of more you're on your own or if the company has its own resources, it will uh, address it. The other challenge that we're finding is that we're not seeing enough uh, translators and interpreters available in state agencies or around, even though, again, Connecticut has a really high population, almost a, a fifth of the population is Spanish speaking uh, in the state of Connecticut. But for some reason, that hasn't been a priority here in the state. And Nelly, as you continue to sort of process this, you also recently hosted a workshop for Latino elected officials in Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Massachusetts to address mis, dis, and malinformation. Can you tell us about this workshop? And can you also share, you know, what are some of the takeaways that you got from this? Sure. No, thanks. Yeah, in last June, uh, over at the Pell Center at Salva Regina University, uh, we brought together elected officials from throughout the region, from from New York, from sorry, from Rhode Island, Connecticut, and uh, Massachusetts, uh, to talk about this important issue of, of mis, dis, and malinformation. The genesis of it came out of my own lessons learned as Secretary of State uh, during one of the most challenging times in our democracy, the 2016 federal election, uh, and its aftermath, and and. I was leaving office, I, I was term limited, and I thought, okay, I can't have what I've learned basically stop with me uh, so that what, what Charles speaks to doesn't happen, which is, you know, the, the, we have to reinvent wheels. And so I thought, okay, let me hold this workshop um, and, and share the knowledge about the, the dangers uh, to our democracy about this and what are the tools that are available. And so we had a, a, a full day event um, we had people from Naleo, from the Educational Fund. We had a media literacy professor from the University of Rhode Island, Renee Hobbs, Dr. Pablo Rodriguez, who is an expert on public health and, and, and has um, an actual website called Nuestra Salud, which is a, a medical uh, information uh, website. And, and it was funded by the uh, Hispanic Federation. Uh, we had Hispan we had the Latino Victory Fund as well supporting. Uh, from Connecticut, we have Steve, your own Stephen Hernandez, uh, Executive Director uh, for the Commission on, on Women, Senior uh, Children, and Seniors. And uh, it was it was really important to to be able to convey what are the issues, what are the problems, and then what are potential solutions that the community, other elected leaders, can take on to prevent uh, this kind of situation from happening. And as you mentioned, you did not want your experience to stop uh, when you ended your your term as Rhode Island's uh, Secretary of State. Can you talk about how that experience informed some of the strategies and resources you shared during that workshop? And your term was between 2015 and 2023, so that, including, that included two presidential elections and also at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, it was it was a fun time to be uh, chief still. That's one way to put it. <laughs> um, you know, it you know, it, it yeah, I mean it was uh, it was very interesting. Uh, I had come into the office as having been a former deputy secretary of state and having had a lifelong interest in civic engagement. So, I thought I knew pretty much what I was heading into when I became elected secretary of state. Uh, the 2016 election uh, really put that notion to rest. Uh, in 2017, uh, the outgoing Obama administration uh, suddenly announced that they were making elections critical infrastructure. None of us knew what that meant. There was this big flurry. I mean, it was, you know, this is the 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 the, the election where Trump won, and 
ancillary loss. And so everybody's emotions were all raw. And, and, and it seemed odd to have an administration try to make something so big happen in the last month. Uh, as we got more information, we got to understand why. And it was that uh, when we got together with the intelligence uh, community, uh, and this is a nonpartisan meeting uh, under the sponsorship of the National Association of Secretaries of State, uh, it became very clear that there were foreign actors that had tried to uh, affect the, the results of the 2016 election uh, and try to sway uh, the population. And, um, and so that all gave us the information we needed to try to make sure that we battled things. And, and some of it was we needed to battle with investments in hardware and software and processes uh, of elections. Uh, and there was a big outlay of federal monies for that purpose. Uh, but the more challenging uh, situation is this with the mis, dis, and malinformation, because it hits against our one of our most cherished rights, which is the freedom of speech. And it and 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 it really is difficult to counter because you don't want the government to be affecting or, or somehow influencing what kind of speech is, is presented. And so um, it's, uh, it really hits at a sort of an Achilles heel in our democracy. And what it, and to me, the solution is education. It's not necessarily combating it head on in terms of what, what is false information, although there can be some of that that happens as examples. But you're, it, it is like the woman from uh, El Timpano described. It's kind of like a whack-a-mole. What you really want to do is to really prepare your community to be skeptical, to have media literacy in schools, to be able to say, you know, this is really not sounding totally right, or this is too good to be true. And let me dig a little bit deeper before they hit the forward button on their, on their social media app. And so, uh, yeah, that's sort of what's the genesis for me. And it impressed on me the importance of passing this knowledge forward so that we can continue to invest in, in, in improving media literacy among immigrant communities. I mean, one of the scariest things that I found was that uh, when I was able to ask social media companies, at, you know, representatives from Facebook, Twitter, um, WhatsApp, uh, about what, what did they do when they encountered false information, blatantly false information on their, their programs, uh, there was just silence. And to this day, there is research that shows that false information in English on any of the social media apps gets taken down much more readily than it does in other languages. And I happen to be fluent in Spanish, so that's the one that I know. But that is really worrisome to me. I mean, we had a lot of problems with, in public health with the pandemic because of false information about the vaccines and, and what was going on in, in the community. So this is, this is a real struggle for us in this country. And we're going to be hearing from El Timpano in a second, and we'll also talk much more about the media side of things after our break. But Charles, I want to ask you, too, especially with what Nelly just said, you know, thinking ahead to the 2024 election, you know, what are some concerns that you have around voting and language access here in Connecticut? Well, I want to emphasize what uh, Secretary Secorbea said, because what we're finding is that at every age group here in Connecticut, particularly, and I suspect it's national, everybody's relying on social media. 
So they're not reading so much newspapers, which would filter out a lot of this disinformation, but also cable TV is not very popular. And it's a wild west out there in, in, in social media. And again, this is really challenging because when you have seniors who are participating at higher rates and, and younger populations and across the board relying on sort of open access media, you're going to see a lot of conspiracy theories populating and a lot of unchecked information that's uh, flowing. And that's a problem for in terms of communicating uh, information about elected uh, officials particularly in the state of Connecticut, which is what I'm focused on. And before we go to our break, Nelly, I want to ask uh, your, your response to Charles. Do you have any concerns about the next election? Oh, absolutely. I don't think that you can, um, you, you cannot have concerns. Um, and, and, you know, what's really troubling to me also is that many of these communities are um, absorbing information from websites and and in other languages that where foreign governments are actually getting involved in 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 providing mis dis and malinformation uh that's that's being conveyed without uh proper due diligence or any kind of 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 stopgap to to address it um but, you know, I, I have to say, I mean, Connecticut, in, in many ways, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're, the largest population area that we're talking about are Puerto Ricans, and Puerto Ricans have a, a right to receiving their, their, their voting materials in both Spanish and English. And so it, it seems to me that, that in a lot more attention needs to be placed uh, to make sure that people are getting, you know, correct information and, and that they're getting it from trusted sources. That means that government offices need to have people who are multilingual uh, to be able to serve their taxpayers, to serve their communities in, in an appropriate way. And really quickly, because you touched on it a little bit just now, but um, can you talk about how it's important also to fold in other languages beyond Spanish to this conversation? I know, absolutely. I mean, and, and you know, I get it. I, I've been in elected office. You can't do every single language. Um, out there, but but there are rules and there are laws right now on the books, and and there's a threshold that the Voting Rights Act provides with regards to providing, for example, election information uh, in in another language. And if you're you have a a speak language speaking community uh, that's that's fluent in something other than English, uh, then then you can guide yourselves by that metric, uh, and 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 provide the information that that community has absolutely a civil right to. You've been listening to Nelly Gorbea. She's a visiting senior fellow on cybersecurity at the Pell Center and the former Secretary of State of Rhode Island, as well as UConn's Dr. Charles Venator. Coming up, we'll hear from the founding director of El Timpano about their efforts to tackle disinformation locally. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Trusted new outlets play a massive role in countering myths and disinformation just by doing what we do best. That was what our next guest realized after leading 100-plus Latino immigrants to tackle disinformation. And joining us now to discuss is Madeline Baer. She's the founding director of El Timpano. Timpano is Spanish for eardrum, and the outlet aims to inform, engage, and amplify the voices of the Bay Area's Latino and Mayan immigrants. Thank you so much, Madeline, for joining us today. Madeline, are you there? I'm hearing some sound, but he, she may not be there, but we're going to check on that real quick. But still with us is Nellie Gorbea. She's a visiting senior fellow on cybersecurity at the Pell Center as well as Dr. Charles Venator, who is with UConn. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Charles, as we wait for Madeline to come on, you know, can we talk about how important is this community-based approach in thinking about mis- and, dis- and disinformation? Uh, it's crucial. Uh, and let me tie in a, a, a really important issue here in Connecticut. Connecticut has a closed election system. So when people arrive to Connecticut, they generally have to register in a political party to participate in the conventions, to identify uh, potential uh, uh, candidates. And then they you have to be registered in a, in, a, in a political party to participate in primaries. Most Puerto Ricans and Latinos tend to be encouraged to identify as independents or unaffiliated, uh, rather, so they don't participate in a conventions or primary process. And, and to this extent, they re- they end up in the elections without necessarily having general knowledge or, or in-depth knowledge of the candidates. So this community-based approach is really crucial because it compensates for the lack of political participation of, of Puerto Rican and Latino uh, electors in this whole year-long process that begins uh, in the spring, uh, culminates in August, and then and then then we have an exit. And it's these community-based organizations that oftentimes have the more direct access to address uh, that lack of information, lack of political socialization among electors here in Connecticut. And really quickly, just want to check if Madeline is on the line. Madeline, are you there? Hi, good morning. 
Good morning. Nice to hear you. Uh, sorry that we missed you a little bit earlier, but glad to have you back online. We have Malin from El Timpano. Uh, we just finished up a conversation earlier about the important role that government has in curbing misinformation. So we'll love to get your thoughts about the big picture, you know, about the role that the media plays in addressing misinformation and disinformation. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me part of this conversation. Um, so El Tifano is a civic media organization. Um, all of our strategies have really been designed with and for Latino and indigenous Mayan immigrants of the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, I founded it really because I saw there was a big gap um, in information that serves this community that, um, you know, we conducted uh, surveys and listening sessions to really hear from Latino immigrants um, about what they wanted to see in local media. And the number one response we received from our survey was simply más información, more information. Um, I've heard some of the the other guests already speak about this, that the you know, when it comes to uh, Latino immigrants and other communities of color across our country, um, they experience inequitable information. And that goes from everything from lack of translated materials from government agencies, um, but also, you know, a real lack of local news. Um, I, I founded El Timpano because, you know, I, I myself am not Latina, um, I'm, I'm white, I'm college educated, and I married into a Latino immigrant family and saw that, you know, I have so many more um, options for quality local information than my in-laws um, just because I speak English and I mm-hmm. have access to a smartphone and uh, subscribe to digital newsletters. And so, you know, what El Timpano has found, and we really um, ramped up our uh, work to prevent and address disinformation um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we found that really disinformation thrives in this void and a lack of information. Um, You know, there was, uh, in, in 2021, we reported on a surge of COVID cases that winter. And um, a a mother featured in that story, uh, she had COVID and she was trying her best to isolate in her home. And she told us that she was taking home remedies, um, essentially a tea to cope with her symptoms because she hadn't received any information from the local public health department. Um, And so she was making this tea that a relative passed to her on WhatsApp. And she told us herself, I know this is probably not the best remedy to address this um, illness, but it's all the information I have. And so I think that big picture is one of the the big takeaways that we've found is, you know, really to address this information, we need to provide people with reliable, accessible and trusted information in the first place. And so you started this disinformation defense initiative two years ago. Can you talk about why it was so important to decentralize their approach? Yeah, I mean, at that point, especially so many efforts to address disinformation um, really were based on um, this fact checking approach of, you know, if we could just fact check every piece of disinformation that is swirling through our community and let people know that that is not correct and share that around. 
Um, and, you know, for us, that didn't make sense for a few reasons. First of all, we're a tiny organization, and there is simply no way that um, that we, but also that, that media outlets much bigger than us, could um, surface and fact check every piece of misinformation that might be circulating among the uh, among our audiences. Um, but secondly, um, you know, we we were really inspired by this approach um, of public health education called Promotores that was really developed in Latin America and has. Um, really taken on popularity among Latino uh, communities in the U.S. Um, and promotoras really, it means essentially ambassadors. And the way it works is really by training community members themselves um, to be trusted messengers of uh, verified public health information. And so you'll find a lot of community clinics, um, a lot of community-based organizations have promotoras groups um, because they recognize that particularly among um, marginalized communities, there's already a, either a lack of trust or a lack of relationships with uh, institutions like the government or um, like medical professionals. Um, and so we were really inspired by the promotoras model and decided, you know, instead of us trying to verify every single piece of misinformation, let's train community members themselves, let's train um, the mothers, the neighbors, the, um, the teachers, um, the uh, kind of informal community leaders among our community to uh, themselves be able to identify disinformation. Um, and so that's really how our Comunidades Informadas initiative uh, developed. Um, and so we worked with uh, with our own audience. We worked with local community-based organizations and with experts on disinformation to develop a training um, that really is designed with and for Latino immigrants to provide them with basic understanding of how disinformation works why it is that their community is targeted with disinformation, and what are some basic steps that they can take um, to defend their communities and stop the spread of disinformation among their communities. And so it's about this decentralization, but also localization. Madeline, earlier you mentioned the importance of, of local news and, and media as well. You, you recently wrote a piece reflecting on two years of running this initiative and included five lessons learned. And one of the five that you listed is the most common ways people experience disinformation may not be what you think. Can you talk about that more, especially since, you know, we've been talking about elections, we've been talking about uh, pandemic related disinformation, but it goes way beyond those two focuses. Yeah, that was a really interesting um, learning from conducting these workshops in every single workshop, I mean, we, we developed this during COVID um, be, because we saw such targeted disinformation, um, you know, really targeting Latino immigrants in particular. And when we conducted this workshop, um, the number one mm. question or example that participants brought up in the workshop was consumer fraud. Um, and, you know, that's because 
um, long before COVID and, you know, much more commonly than electoral disinformation, um, Latino immigrants have uh, really been targeted by consumer fraud. And um, it plays out in the same way as public health disinformation or political disinformation. It, it's really um, taking advantage of people's vulnerabilities. Um, in this case, you know, a, a lot of people don't speak English or are afraid to contact police or, um, again, don't have a trusted source of information where they can go to ask if this is um, a legitimate uh, source. Um, and so we heard so many people telling us that they've been victims of or nearly victims of consumer fraud um, that was shared on, you know, on WhatsApp or just in the mail um, and where their identity was stolen or they were provided a false uh, ATM card saying that it, it had money on it. Um, and so, you know, one thing that we found is using this approach of popular education, of really training people to understand how disinformation takes place, it um, has benefits well beyond just helping people make informed decisions about public health um, or to take part in democratic processes uh, because people start to understand, oh, maybe I, maybe I'm too quick to believe in this because it's actually designed to make to, to make me fall into a trap. Um, and so that was a really interesting learning for us in facilitating these disinformation workshops. And before we go to our next break, really quickly, Nellie, I would love to get your response to Madeline and her work here. No, I, I have to say, I, I, have, I was thrilled to learn of Madeline's work and her approach. As somebody remembers Promotoras de Salud as the go-to tactic of, you know, like the 90s when I was back in working at the Rhode Island Foundation. Um, but, you know, there's two things that, that jump out of me. One is, you know, that the, the health, the, the lack of, of information is, is real. And so, for example, in Rhode Island, in the public health arena, it led to the creation of an actual website in Spanish called Nuestra Salud. And it came out of all of the misinformation and, and disinformation and, and, and consumer fraud stuff that happened during the pandemic. Um, the other thing that that I was struck by is, as I as I hear Madeline speak, is that for Connecticut in particular, it's a little bit different, right? And as as it is in some cases for Rhode Island, in that your largest Latino population is Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans are not immigrants; they're U.S. citizens who happen mm -hmm. to be, in many cases, fluent in Spanish and not so much in English, and so. There's a different dynamic and a set of rights that happens with regards to uh, Puerto Ricans as U.S. citizens versus other communities. But many of the of the of the tactics that Madeline is speaking to uh, serve all immigrant communities and all U.S. citizens. Right. We all go to those people that we know best to get the information we need. And so the tactic is, is definitely applicable to immigrant and citizen groups here in, in our country. You've been listening to Nellie Gorbea. She's a visiting senior fellow on cybersecurity at the Pell Center. Malin Baer, who's the founding director of El Timpano and UConn's Dr. Charles Venator. We'll be continuing this conversation after a quick break. You can also join us. Give us a call at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're discussing Spanish language myths and disinformation and some of the efforts to address it around where we live. Back with us is Dr. Charles Venator. He's with UConn and Nelly Gorbea. She's a senior, she's a visiting senior fellow on cybersecurity at the Pell Center and Madeline Baer, who's the founding director of El Timpano. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Charles, with everything that we've said this hour, we'd love to get your thoughts on the Spanish language media landscape. And can you talk about what are some of the challenges that you're seeing? (laughs) Great question. It's really interesting because Connecticut has actually a pretty decent outreach. There's a lot of radio uh, outreach. Uh, Connecticut Public has an initiative, not just in the state, but also with Puerto Rico, uh, which is really interesting because I get phone calls all the time about uh, reports that happen here in Connecticut from Puerto Rico because they're in Puerto Rico in Nuevo Dia. There's a lot. There's an initiative where they're doing some coverage here in Connecticut and throughout the United States. Um, and but one of the challenges that we're finding uh, is that there are great sources in TV, radio. Uh, and internet, but a lot of people are still getting their information from social media. And as Secretary Segovia said, sometimes that's coming from outside of the United States in unregulated ways, uh, or at least not careful ways. So we're still seeing a lot of people relying on their phones to get information. Um, And there is a lot of misinformation that's floating around and a lot of misunderstanding of politics here in the state. And so Latinos generally have higher than average levels of trust in Spanish language news. You know, what kind of opportunity does that present? And especially with what you just shared, you know, a lot of a lot of people who, who come to the state still rely on the media from their native country. So does that have an impact? Oh, yes. Uh, well, well, again, and, and Secretary Segorbea said Puerto Rico has, you know, uh, La, uh, Connecticut has a higher proportion of Puerto Ricans or the Latino population in the state is primarily Puerto Rican, at least half of them. Um, and they're getting uh, fairly uh, clear information from Puerto Rico as well as Connecticut. <clears throat> My concern is here in Connecticut is that there are all these networks of information sharing that sometimes uh, rely on, again, social media uh, sources that are promoting conspiracies. And, and I'm not sure how to tackle that one here uh, with that, other than media literacy and keep pushing campaign information. Mm-hmm. But it's really hard. Right. And could, yeah, go for it, Nelly. If I could jump in, I mean, I think one way, one of the other insights that, that I shared from um, this recent blog on, on, on what we've learned addressing disinformation is, you know, it's not only um, our our popular education model, but I think what has really um, made an impact for El Timpano in, in addressing disinformation among our audience is that our primary platform for providing information in Spanish is really a two-way communications platform. We primarily use text messaging to reach our audience of of Spanish-speaking immigrants. And what that means is that not only can we um, provide information, um, uh, you know, and and in 2021 in particular, so much of our work was really just to help people navigate the COVID-19 pandemic, 
um, next year. Certainly, we'll, we'll be focused a lot on the election. Um, but not only were we p- able to provide in that period information about, you know, the latest public health policies, the status of vaccinations, um, but we were also able to uh, respond to people's questions and invite people to ask us questions. And in 2021 alone, we answered more than 1,500 questions from our subscribers. And I really think of that as preventative, like a way to prevent disinformation, because so many of the questions um, were really about personal uh, health um, issues that weren't otherwise addressed in, you know, in general public health uh, campaigns. Um, and so if, if our subscribers didn't have a source to go to to ask those questions, they, and many told us, they may not have gotten a COVID-19 vaccine because they simply had lingering questions that were keeping them um, from getting vaccinated. And through our two-way communications platform, we were able to provide them um, a source to ask and, and to find answers. So I think that's one other aspect of, you know, just how media can innovate to address disinformation and kind of try to fill that void um, that other uh, of information that otherwise disinformation can easily fill. And Nellie, with what Madeline just shared, especially with such a mm-hmm. focus on, on public health and personal health and able to sort of feel those questions from their subscribers, you know, what are your concerns around public health information, especially uh, you were the Secretary of State for Rhode Island through the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we'd love to get your thoughts on this. No, absolutely. No, what Madeline is calling uh, attention to is fantastic. And I would say that we need greater funding of these kinds of efforts. They're not cheap. This is not like putting stuff up on a website or or sending out texts uh, by bots. This is actually answering people's questions and having those dialogues at a very granular level. And, And so that costs money. And so we need to make sure uh, and now I'm going to put my elected official hat, that, that money is being put into these efforts, uh, either by the philanthropic sector or by the governmental sectors, to help promote uh, accurate you know, sort of information uh, getting to various communities. Uh, we need greater funding of centers of research, like at UConn, uh, you know, the Instituto, the Institute uh, for Latino, Caribbean, and Latin American Studies, because that's where the research is happening that can then help combat uh, this disinformation and misinformation. And, and finally, we need to put social media companies on watch like, and on call, as well as governmental offices. The same things that you're doing for your English language dominant communities, you need to be also doing that for uh, other communities in other languages. Uh, it is absolutely essential that we get equal distribution of resources uh, to combat misdis and malinformation. Uh, thanks. And Charles, with what both Nellie and Malin shared, you know, have you seen this to be true in Connecticut that misinformation is best countered locally or individually? You know, so, so I've been thinking about this because this is a great conversation that's helpful for me. Uh, but one thing that I, I don't think we have talked, and it's something I've been sort of struggling with, we also have a problem with ideological thinking. A lot of our community members, a lot of Latinos and Puerto Ricans, uh, just don't they're not interested in alternative views. Sure. And and as part of this communication strategy, we also have to address the ideological resistance 
some people do embrace some of these sort of positions that are not necessarily helpful for the community. So yeah, we we've seen that we need more resources, uh, but we also have to target the ideological thinking among some of the members of the community. Right, and really so, quickly, Charles, go for it. Sorry, I just want to thirty say seconds. That that's actually, not something that's just for Latinos. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's across the board. We have a problem of ideological lack of civility in, yes. in listening to others. Um, and I do urge you to look at the great work that the University of Rhode Island is doing with their media lab um, in terms of media literacy and holding uh, conversations with people of disparate viewpoints, community conversations that help people practice this art of listening to alternative points of view. And yes. Madeline, with what both Nellie and, and Charles just shared, would love to get your final thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm so glad that Nelly um, ended with a, a plug for funding. Um, you know, something that's really interesting about El Timpano is one of our biggest supporters, um, and that has really allowed us to grow and provide this service during the pandemic has been our local public health department, um, because they realized that if they wanted to reach communities most vulnerable to COVID-19, which is black and brown residents, they needed to, to go through trusted messengers. And so um, there, you know, there are many justified reasons that communities of color don't trust the government for, for the communities El Timpano serves. The primary reason is that, you know, a lot of immigrants simply don't have um, a relationship to begin with or a trusted relationship with government institutions or medical professionals. And so um, I love this approach that our local public uh, health department has taken to to partner, to, to really work in partnership with trusted messengers to be able to provide trusted and verified information to residents. Well, thank you very much for that. You've been listening to Malin Bear, who's the founding director of El Timpano. Thank you so much, Malin, for being with us today. Thank you. As well as Nelly Gorbea, who's a visiting senior fellow on the cybersecurity at the Pell Center. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, and thank you to uh, Connecticut Public Radio for focusing on this very important topic. And so increased funding goes for public radio as well. Well, thanks yes. for that plug. We are very happy to hear that. And as well as UConn's Dr. Charles Venator, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>